The Cambi Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwikwetlem peoples. It's Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, and there are 486 days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Cambie Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. What a jam-packed show we have for you today, filled with some silliness, some mayoralty shenanigans, and I think it's going to be very interesting charts we have more charts oh yes the return the always vaunted return of charts on a podcast <laughs> but if you want to continue trying to imagine a visual medium through this audio program please continue to support us on patreon.com slash report yes patreon.com slash report the thing that makes us reputable enough that people will send us interesting data that is not otherwise public you will hear exclusive results here today yes it is it is very exciting and it is all thanks to you generous contributors who make this possible so thank you once again for your continued support and for those of you who have not supported yet we encourage you to do so it is always greatly appreciated and comes with some lovely perks including our uh, slack channel and early access to live events, which we apparently can hold soon. Also, happy 100th episode. Oh, yeah. We're at 100. <laughs> That's uh, the sum total of all the celebrations that we have planned. Perhaps we'll do something coming up as the pandemic wanes, but <laughs> as it stands right now. Happy 100. For those of you who have been with us since the beginning, thank you for sticking with us. It has been quite a ride and a really rewarding one anyway so and it's only going to get more exciting over the next 486 days and beyond yes so in the race for the mayoralty the four candidates so far are busy beavers sim cooper marison and stewart are all barreling down the track in what is going to be a marathon of an election campaign but there has been some good news for kennedy stewart a complaint that has been described as frivolous, which we have covered in a previous episode, in which Kennedy Stewart called upon his political rivals in the MPA to denounce racism and extremism, stating that party's leaders had so far failed to stop hate spreading within their party. Basically, someone filed a conflict of interest complaint saying it was inappropriate for Stewart to use his office to attack his political opposition. They objected to the use of the City of Vancouver letterhead and having people in the mayor's office help prepare that statement. Like, I kind of get the argument if Stewart's going to yell about the NPA, that's a personal political position rather than the mayor of Vancouver. But in the list of transgressions and misuses of public office that have occurred probably in Vancouver and Canada and around the world. This feels trivial. Yeah, it feels tr pretty trivial. It feels, in fact, frivolous, which is the word that was used to describe it in a report. Lawyer Alicia Southern, who was appointed as the ad hoc integrity commissioner to investigate this complaint, found that neither allegation was 
substantiated. And I, I did learn something, is that there is a lower standard of impartiality for the mayor's office than there is for, for example, city staff. The mayor's office, Quoth uh, Leith or Southern, operates independently from the city. The mayor's office has political employees who, although city employees, uniquely report to Mayor Stewart. So I guess this would be like the prime minister's office or premier's office, which are quasi-political bodies as opposed to like the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Health yeah, in many ways. That's, I think that's a good analogy. Like the operations of the mayor's office do, I, I think, inherently engage a political aspect to, you know, the nature of civic politics. And indeed, we have been critical of the mayor for not being as political as we think he should be and as it turns out that is a-okay now this does not mean that the mayor is entirely out of hot water with respect to this complaint everyone's favorite floridian wes musio of uh, complaint against michael weeb fame has and the board of directors of the npa fame yes that's true uh, also that has mentioned that he thinks that the commissioner's decision is the correct one. So he doesn't actually take issue with the fact that there isn't a a conflict of interest there. However, he still believes that the mayor's conduct cannot be condoned, even though it doesn't amount to a conflict of interest. The proper forum for his allegations of defamation, like he is alleging that... Can't see the eye rolls over a podcast, right? Yeah, he's alleging that this statement amounted to defamation of the MPA board. Far-fetched, in my personal opinion. What I really love about this part is Musio has apparently filed this claim with the court, and that was four months ago, but has yet to serve any of the respondents, in which means that his case can't go ahead until you actually tell the people you're suing that you're suing them. Yeah. And so now because of this finding around conflict of interest, Musio said he's going to probably remove the city as a co-defendant and then just send it directly to the mayor at some point soon. At some point. TBD. In the fullness of time, as it matures with age. So uh, I, I think that Stewart is effectively out of the woods on this one, probably. It is going to be an annoying thing to have to deal with the lawsuit, but not, I think, a huge amount of legal jeopardy for him there, where he might be facing a little more sustained and uh, reasonable attacks are from his two mayoral competitors, Ken Sim and Mark Marison, who have both penned op-eds in Business in Vancouver over the past week. Yeah, I think I saw one in Vancouver is awesome. The mastheads are like interchangeable these days, the way their brand goes, but... There, there was a third mayoral candidate that we didn't talk about, John Cooper, but he's just not been doing... He's doing park board stuff, I guess. Very important park board stuff. Very important park board stuff. Very, very important, you know, considering still whether or not drinking in parks is acceptable. Let's dig into the Mark Marison piece first. Mayor seeks political profit from housing policy failure. This is a piece largely centered around the loss of Councillor Christine Boyle's motion that we talked about on the last two episodes that sought to improve the conditions for nonprofit developers to build in certain districts in Vancouver without going to a public hearing. Something 
someone who ran for Yes Vancouver on a very pro build in my backyard platform. He didn't run with them. He worked behind the scenes, but someone who is largely behind that would support, understandably. Yeah, and and he is doing his part to hold Mayor Stewart's feet to the fire, pointing out that while Kennedy Stewart promised to clear the backlog in permitting, a, a thing that will come up again, most of the social housing council approved between 2016 to 2019 hasn't yet been built. Uh, and another thousand uh, units are still held up in permitting. There are still apartment bans in over 75% of residential land, and there are just as many people experiencing homelessness as ever. Marison quotes Housing Minister David Eby, who was saying recently, I'm really concerned about the number of projects held up in Vancouver, and he's hoping that, I imagine, Eby will implement some of the measures he's looking at to kickstart the process if mayors like Kennedy Stewart aren't getting things done. Yeah, and, and I think this sort of helps us distill what Marison's pitch is going to be for the election. It's effectively, I am a person who knows how to work with people of any political stripe to get things done. This is particularly crystallized in the section of his op-ed in which he says he would have voted for the motion that Christine Boyle had brought forward, and he provides a couple of caveats as to how exactly he would have supported the motion. But he lays the blame for the failure of the motion at the feet of the mayor. It's the mayor who is supposed to win over council. And instead of doing that, he is campaigning instead of governing and fundraising instead of bridge building. There's a lot in there, right? It's, I think it's a valid critique. It's also a difficult one to land because to do it, you have to be away from the desk, right? You are not sitting at the decision desk. You are saying what you would do at the decision desk, and you have to do it as a campaigner who is also fundraising. So it's an easy one to log for, lob from the outside, but it's also one that I think a lot of people will see as easy. Like Kennedy Stewart, when he ran, he talked about his ability to build bridges and get things done and move things forward, and then it didn't materialize. Yeah. Like, you need more than just saying the words. Yeah, and I, I think that Marison, the big challenge for Marison, in, in addition to like just getting his name into the mix, and we can talk a little bit about that when we come down to the polls, but he is going to be demonstrating that he is going to be able to deliver where Stewart was not and, and provide some evidence to that effect. Yeah, I still see it being really difficult with this council, like a different mayor being able to win the votes of the NPA and ex-NPA and the un, the whatever we want to call the Greens these days. They did not manage to end up supporting that motion. So I think the Greens is perfect because it implies there are many different shades of green. Ken Sim also is, in addition to declaring his affinity for birds, this, this is a quote taken entirely out of context, but... It's not much more sensical in context, to be fair. <laughs> Ken Sim also writes a op-ed kind of decrying the lack of leadership coming out of Mayor Stewart's office. His pitch is effectively that there is a leadership deficit that is leaving important issues unaddressed. Ken Sim would tackle these issues and bring leadership and bold ideas back to City Hall. Also, we pay too much in taxes. Also, it would be great to have cruise ships come through here instead of being cut off by that new U.S. law. Yeah, and I, I think that of the two criticisms, Marison's is somewhat more cogent than Sims, because even John Horgan, who I, I think is 
cognizant of the fact that losing cruise ships and losing the U.S. stopover requirement that effectively makes uh, a stop in Vancouver or Victoria necessary for most Alaskan cruises, it's a lot more difficult for a mayor to have influence on the U.S. Senate than, than it is for the mayor to have influence over housing policy in their own city. Yeah, the other line I found interesting in Sims was he was on his rip about the park board, which we've shared on here and I think are sympathetic to as well. Mm -hmm. But he argues in favor of putting park board powers in council's hands. And this would be a way to quote, let's take the politics out of our parks. But given the council we have, I can't see it being a less politically fraught challenge. It would just be a different one where people might actually pay a bit more attention. Yeah. And I, I think that like this structural critique isn't a particularly good one to lob against Stewart because it's not like he created the park board or like his party, which doesn't exist, is responsible for the park board. The The park board effectively has very close to, I believe, a green majority. Yeah, I think between the Greens and Cope, they can pass whatever they want. If the Greens decide to vote together. Yeah. And cope. I think there's two cope trustees. Yeah. So I, I think that his and Marison's kind of angles of attack here are effectively the same thing, although Marison is focusing a little more on local issues and Sim is trying to paint a broader picture that may or may not be entirely fair. But, however, the, the bird thing, I think, is just hilarious because... He's talking about how the mayor was filming something for migratory bird awareness. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have a problem with the mayor doing something like that. It's not like that was all the mayor was doing. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the mayor was doing. It doesn't appear to be talking with his council colleagues that day. But, you know, I, it's, it's not the most salient or cogent of arguments in my mind. Indeed. Well, let's pivot and talk about how each of them are doing and looking to the public because we have some tentative early but kind of dodgy let's be honest numbers from both a public poll from someone i'd never heard of and a leaked poll that we'll be talking about in a second let's talk about this public poll first this comes from sutherland corporation as well as globacon research globacon does the interactive voice response the telephone poll bit of it and sutherland i guess is the pr firm that interpreted it and put out the press release this made its way to my inbox via a few twitter dms i don't think it had been released publicly but it like when i reached out to the company they were like here's here's our full data table so it is a public poll that they just didn't get any publicity for so the canby report is here to talk about the poll from the pollster no one had heard of. Both of these, I think, are done at well. The Sutherland one had 1,308 participants. This is a bit older, from April 20th to 22nd, and they consider it accurate to plus or minus 4.1%. On the most important question, the only one we really care about is, if an election were held today, who would you vote for, for mayor? 20% of people said Kennedy Stewart. 19% said Green Councillor Adrian Carr. 17% said Ken Sim, 10% said Andrea Reimer, 5% said John Cooper, 4% said Mark Marison, 6% said another, and 18% are undecided. 
And so they kind of pitch it as a three-way race between declared candidates, Kennedy Stewart and Ken Sim, and person who is probably not running, Adrian Carr? Yeah, I don't think Adrian Carr is going to run. I, I think that comparing this and the other poll, there is some substantial danger there for Kennedy Stewart if someone on the left does run, because it seems like there is some substantial dissatisfaction and willingness to park votes with a green candidate other than Kennedy Stewart that whittles his his lead down from commanding to barely there at all. Yeah, let's well let's bring in the question from the other poll. So the other poll is leaked to me from the Kennedy Stewart campaign or is one that I'm pretty sure they commissioned. I believe it was done by Insights West, but I haven't confirmed that. This was a poll done on between May 5th and May 7th, 2021. So it's a little bit newer, but it's still dated. Only 597 voters in this one. But if you have a good pool, that could still be pretty accurate. They say plus or minus 4%. Mm -hmm. So on the who would you vote for mayor, 37% said Kennedy Stewart, 21% said Ken Sim, 7% Mark Marison, 6% John Cooper, 8% other, and 21% not sure. So like you were saying, a much stronger lead for Kennedy Stewart when there aren't greens or progressives in the mix. Yeah, and I think that shows what what effectively the last election showed about the electorate is that there is a a pretty broad center left voting block in Vancouver that is enough to win a plurality. There is if they are able to stay united. If the right is able to divide itself, there is a, a substantially larger chance that the united left would be able to scoop the mayoralty. Of course, if you can pool the Ken Sim, Mark Marison, and John Cooper votes, which you probably can't, but that is also a significant voting block. Mm -hmm. Like, the election in Vancouver is really who has their shit together. Yeah. And right now it looks like the left does. I'll note that I reached out to uh, former Vision Vancouver councillor Andrea Reimer, and she told me I'm neither a candidate nor actively considering it. But I uh, suspect many people have been reaching out to her going, hey, you're at 10% in a poll when you haven't even asked to be on a poll. And that's kind of how Kennedy Stewart ended up mayor, if we recall the origin story of Mario Canseco putting his name randomly in a poll and then suddenly people were interested in the former MP being mayor. Yeah. Again, not, I think, the greatest reason for running for mayor, but whatever. I guess you won, so congratulations. Now, in, in the second question, the what political parties would you support, I think this is a little less informative because the MPA is broadly imploding, and, and I don't know that that is going to make its way into the uh, actual polling in a low information environment such as this? Yeah, I think these are broadly reflective of where people are parking their votes. Mm -hmm. The Globalcon Sutherland poll found that 23% would vote NPA, 16% Green, 10% Vision, 10% Cope, 6% One City, and 5% for a better city the not officially Ken Sim vehicle. In the Kennedy Stewart poll, this one's a little more interesting. They find 21% for the Greens, 10% for the NPA, 9% for Vision, 6% for a better city. Others beat out 
a few others with 6%, Cope gets 5%, Yes Vancouver gets 4%, One City gets 3%, and 32% are just not even sure. The Kennedy Stewart one's really interesting though because they ask, some people think Mayor Kennedy Stewart should run with a team in the next election. With this in mind, if municipal election were held, which party would you support? And Team Kennedy gets 18% to the Greens 15% and everyone else kind of holds about the same vote. I think we can use that that 18% as a pretty good metric for what Kennedy's core support is. Like the people who are so enthusiastic about the Kennedy mayoralty that they would like to see more on council. And I don't know who those people are or what council they've been watching, but I am interested in, in like looking and seeing if that 18% number is pretty reliable. It does seem like very similar to that 20% who would vote for Kennedy Stewart as mayor in the first poll that we talked about through GlobalCon. Yeah, the Sutherland GlobalCon also asked which specific councillor you would vote for. This is a pretty useless question because I bet 90% of Vancouverites couldn't name one. And the way these answers came down is everyone gets between 8 and 14%, which is pretty close to your margin of error, with Adrian Carr and Pete Fry doing a bit better than Sarah Kirby Young, who's at the bottom. But like it's marginally different yeah uh, i i think it's, it's basically a useless question especially since you could vote for all of these people indeed like it, it's not surprising adrian carr is at the top i think she's got the longest tenure there melissa de has also got 11 percent, so both have the higher chance of having no re- a name recognition than the others they also asked about issues facing vancouver and a couple other questions but I'm a little less interested in those unless you want to dig into them. I just thought it was like unsurprising but notable that housing and affordability is still the number one issue that is concerning Vancouverites before climate change or economy and the overdose crisis, which are you know all huge issues in their own right. I also really appreciated that 7% of people's primary voting issue is that Vancouver is no fun. <laughs> which I mean, admittedly is going to be part of my calculation when I am voting, but it's not going to be my primary one, I will tell you that. Remember when Kennedy said he would allow drinking in parks? Yeah, I do, and it's as confusing then as it is now. Well, one thing each of these candidates will have to deal with is climate change and the emergency we find ourselves in. Council got the chance to review some of the staff recommendations that came out of the big moves climate change emergency motion that passed, I believe it was last year. And we're starting to see some details of what that will mean and how staff are trying to balance all of the different tensions, especially with COVID coming in. And this report came back. Most prominently, there was in there a recommendation to delay a lot of the recommendations by a year on part because of an increased number of permits coming forward to the city. That just means additional regulations mean additional time. And on the other part, because they say staff are burnt out from working from home on through COVID and using all these different systems. And so staff asked for some delay. Prominently among those delays would be pushing back when a ban on installing gas lines, natural gas lines to new developments would happen in new constructions that was tentatively going to happen in January 2022 and staff were saying why don't we move that to 2023 
Christine Boyle and One City pushed back against this hard, as well as a bunch of other environmentalists with accusations that the natural gas lobby and industry was pushing for this delay, hoping to, you know, hook more buildings up in the meantime. Staff, council actually voted down that recommendation, though, and they stuck to their guns on getting gas out of new builds as of January 1st. Uh, And I think that's a positive. One other thing that is positive in this staff report coming to council is that there have been additional efforts to speed up new homes and development of new homes, including the temporary suspension of the tree protection bylaw, which is a delightful part of my life all too often from the Board of Variants, which could see larger trees cut down without the needs for arborist reports. Right now, all trees that are above 20 centimeters at 1.4 meters, basically at a man's chest height, above 20 centimeters in diameter at uh, chest height is a protected tree and you can't cut it down without getting a development permit or in lieu of that going to the board of variants to ask them to give you permission to cut down your own trees and this specific bylaw is one that i know has been cited a few times in stories of frustration with the city hall process because i think it was in francis Bula's take where you would start the process of you know, building a laneway house or something relatively trivial from something you're otherwise allowed to do by zoning. And you have to get, among other things, an arborist report to talk about the trees that are on your property. But by the time you get through all of the other hoops and jumps, your report has expired because trees grow. And so it might be that the trees are bigger and you now need to get another arborist to come and look at your trees, which just isn't helping anyone except the arborists yes big arborist is against this recommendation the arborist industrial complex few other requirements are also being relaxed i think these come as a package to uh, help staff and meet some of council's goals of reducing permitting times will this do that well i don't know it won't hurt I don't think it'll help, though. Like, I'm going to be a little pessimistic about this, is that when you relax a city bylaw, it it transforms it from a mandatory or, like, shall not stipulation in the the building code to a discretionary one. And the city, in my experience, has been very reticent to exercise its discretion in favor of the applicant. They, They tend not to how shall I put this, view their discretion as a tool that they can be using liberally, let's say. I guess this is one of the things to watch with the major shakeups we've had at City Hall between all of the various chief planners and city managers changing hands. It's a place where you can really start to change that culture and hopefully between that and what staff have come forward with here, because these did originate with staff. And so staff are looking for ways to try to cut down on their workload. So like maybe there's a signal here that this is a regime change moment. Or maybe we could just be pessimistic forever. One thing that we can definitely be pessimistic about is parking reform. So another part of the climate emergency plan, and one of the more controversial ones, was to end free parking in Vancouver effectively to make it so everywhere in the city, every residential zone, you would need a permit to park your vehicle. 
And if you are going to be parking overnight, you will have to pay an overnight residential parking permit, provided it's in a residential zone. If you're parking down by the docks or an, in an industrial zone, I guess you don't need it there unless there are other restrictions. But an interesting plan has come forward from staff to go to consultation, and this will probably go before council in October, where it will die, and we'll get into that <laughs> once we've discussed the plan. Yeah. It, it tries to mix in greenhouse gas regulations around cars with uh, parking fees, because the city only has so many tools to discourage you from driving a gas guzzler. Yeah, and under this plan, vehicles manufactured 2022 or earlier and wheelchair vehicles will not pay extra fees. New electric hybrid vehicles are also exempt from this, but new gas-powered sports sedans and small SUVs face a $500 charge, and then high-polluting vehicles like luxury sports cars and pickups face a $1,000 charge. And that's an annual charge, so that's 83 bucks a month to park your pickup truck on your street, and that's still cheaper than your insurance for that vehicle is. And if you have a driveway or a garage, you can park it there. But like I look around my street and people have, well, because I live in Coquitlam now, people in the suburbs, people have their RVs parked in their driveway and then they park their cars on the street. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's not something that I see a ton of in Vancouver, I will. But you will see people who have more than, you know, two or three cars. So they end up parking some on the street mm -hmm. and there are multiple advantages to getting cars off the street like at the very least if we just if this doesn't eliminate a single vehicle in the city of vancouver fewer cars on streets is safer in so many ways right yeah though there is some there is some argument to say that having our incredibly narrow streets lined on both sides with cars is actually a net safety benefit because it slows people down by making it more dangerous to drive. More dangerous looking streets tend to be safer, which I know seems counterintuitive. I get, I get what you mean. Having driven down them, you go at like 25 kilometers an hour and you're hoping hard to not come face to face with anyone else who will not fit. It also, but having <laughs> having cycled down those streets when a car is coming is not great because there doesn't tend to be enough space for you both. No, especially if it's a pickup. Those things are huge, and yeah. like I'm a tall guy, and I am sometimes concerned as to whether or not pickup drivers can see me. And so, the ideas here all relate to, you know, streets are public space, and they're being taken up by private vehicles, often for free. Mm -hmm. There is potentially an equity concern in here if you are a tradesperson, work, you know, apprentice tradesperson who doesn't have a huge income yet, but you need a pickup truck for work, but you're, you know, a tenant living out of a basement suite, so you don't have proper parking because it's not a legal secondary suite. So you have to put your truck on the street, but now you're facing an extra bill per month. Mm -hmm. I guess you have to just buy an older truck which you probably have anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm not super concerned about the the brand the people with the person who has a $100,000 vehicle. Yeah. The the brand new truck is like the fact that it is because it's it's brand new trucks I don't have a huge problem with the policy. However, there are still like large problems with this this policy which I I'm sure people are going to have their say on once consultation goes forward through to july 5th 
And then once we get the consultation report back, it'll come to council. I struggle based on what we've seen recently to see a way that this motion gets more than four, three, maybe four votes. I, I mean, Michael Weeb owns a car, so in, <laughs> presumptively he's in conflict with this. <laughs> maybe he owns a car. Yeah, I like maybe we've been a little unfair to Michael Weeb, and I, I like I like the guy, but I there was apparently, and and we'll get into this a little later. He was advised by city staff to conflict himself out of the 12 story motion which i I mean i take at face value but apparently he owns property in one of the areas that would have seen such a a substantial rise that he couldn't have justified voting on it it is disappointing though to see so much like it almost makes the case for vancouver being ruled by people outside the city (laughs) because like i understand the need to to prevent these conflicts from like causing people to use city hall as like a, a way to enrich themselves but like i i don't know if we just traded councils with north vancouver would like would we have a a council that has a more like rational way of approaching things i don't know it's it's a little frustrating so i joke on mike weeb undoubtedly I hope he will be voting on this, and I would suspect he'd vote in favor. You'll get Christine Boyle and Kennedy Stewart likely voting in favor of this, and I think I've seen some initial tweets that Jean Swanson's supportive of it as well, though I could see her swinging based on feedback from either public hearings or consultations. Carr and Fry are a bit of wild cards here. This is definitely a green feeling thing, but because it impacts the core constituency of one Adrian Carr, i.e. the green the green owners of single family homes, there is probably going to be some reticence on her part to vote in favor of it. And because this has fees attached to it, I struggle to see any of the NPA or indi- we need a term for the XNPA yeah, counselors. XNPA seems fine. The NPA light, NPA plus. <laughs> Indie NPA. Yeah. The caucus formerly known as the NPA. Whatever whatever they are, that purple-flavored pack of people probably won't be passing this motion. We'll have to see in the fall, but one motion they did come forward with recently, and yet still one Sarah Kirby Young in specific, <laughs> was a ban on leaf blowers. And even more fun is Adrian Carr also had her own. See, this is... This is the thing that blows my mind about council is that like, how are you so dysfunctional that you are unable to harmonize your two leaf blower ban motions? Like, can't, can't you just work together? Can't you just like figure out what each other are doing so that you don't duplicate work and even worse, try and undermine the work of, of your council colleagues by like raising points of order. Uh, I'll, let's go, let's get into this a little bit. So Sarah Kirby Young has brought forward a, a motion that is entitled towards a quieter and emission free landscape maintenance equipment future in Vancouver, which is 
basically a, a leaf blower ban. She has experienced or she has received plenty of complaints from constituents who are, are working from home and find that leaf blowers are very noisy. And so it's unacceptable that they continue to operate in Vancouver. This, of course, is an issue that has plagued Vancouver Council for well over 20 years, as we found out today, seeing as how leaf blower ban recommendations stretch all the way back into 2001. We almost confused that report with the one that was tabled recently. So that that motion was brought up during the motions by members thing right at the end of the last council meeting on June 8th, at which point Councillor Carr, the leader of the other leaf blower motion, rose on a point of order under section 8.7d of the procedure bylaw, saying that this would conflict with the previous motion, specifically the one that would prevent additional work being generated by city, for city staff for the rest of the year. Unfortunately, it doesn't look like they got to actually debate that point of order. It's not in the minutes. I didn't go back and watch the video, but at that point it was past 10 p.m. and the motion to extend the meeting was lost so council just adjourned and we'll continue discussion on it on june 22nd i'll note that the first resolved in councillor kirby young's motion does say that consultation and reporting work on her leaf blower ban not begin before january 2022 after the moratorium is done like as soon as the moratorium is done then you can start looking at this but don't do it in this year mm -hmm. Councillor Carr's motion does not include that at all. Which, which is interesting because, like, when you could have just gotten... What, what is the difference between your motions, exactly? Like, what, how, how badly do you want to ban leaf blowers, each of you? And, like, why can't you do some caucusing to just, like, figure out... Like, just figure it out. Figure it out. Counselors. I love also that they both came on the same day. Like, one of them could have easily had brought in this forward, and Carr might have been thinking about this later in the summer, but it's like they were both sitting in their home offices this spring and were like, you know what? It's really noisy outside as my neighbors have their obnoxious gas powered leaf blowers. Now, is this like, is this simply a factor of the pandemic? Like, I don't think council was working particularly well before the pandemic, but like I, it does seem to have gotten worse. It's also, we're also getting closer and closer to the election and the NPA has imploded. Yeah, that's true. Which none of which has probably helped. Now I imagine Sarah Kirby young, Lisa Dominato and even Rebecca Bly are probably working pretty well together. Yeah. Maybe they talked to Colleen Hardwick, maybe they talked to Melissa DiGenova at times, but mm -hmm. those seem like different wings of the NPA light side. Yeah, Colleen Hardwick has her own constituency and I feel is going to vote however she wants on, on whatever issue or, you know, or not. not vote as the case may be. And we can definitely get into that as well. But and then Melissa DiGenova, I think, is just a cannier political operator than the other three. Like, I, I think that she has read the political winds probably a little better and while it is i think a morally compromising position for her to put herself in she's probably going to win and the other three i would imagine probably aren't if they run as independents well let's let's listen to some words from colleen hardwick at a hearing that was actually just last night 
they were talking about a number of proposed developments and Councillor Hardwick ended up as we've discussed in the past, abstaining as she does. And in this instance, she has provided her rationale for it. So I'll play that. You haven't listened to this yet. I have not. This is a big surprise. Yes, thank you. I'd like to first say that I have utmost respect for the developer, as especially as a family at long time developing in, in Vancouver. But I am concerned, as was Councillor Swanson, about gentrification and the precedent-setting nature of this, especially at six stories, what the impact will be on the character on the other side of the street. And uh, the questions about affordability are, are sound questions. And to that end, this application cites the Housing Vancouver strategy as a precedent in its policy context on page six of the staff report. In May of uh, 2020, Council approved the recalibrating the Housing Vancouver strategy post-COVID-19 motion, which directed staff to provide detailed housing data to justify its housing targets. A year later, this data has not been provided. So since this application is based on insufficient information, I have no choice but to abstain from voting. And to be clear, to abstain means not to vote at all. And when is it appropriate to abstain? Well, an example is when a councillor might abstain when she believes there was insufficient information for her to make a decision. I just wanted to be clear about that. And that those are my comments. Oh, Colleen. She was clear. She was clear. To abstain is to not vote. Is that true? So if we go into the Vancouver Charter, and a similar provision exists in the Community Charter for the rest of the municipalities across the province, you find buried in there a section on voting at council meetings, 145.1. This section applies to all meetings of council and all meetings of committees referred to in the other sections. So when councillors are voting, this applies. Subsection 3. A member of council present at the meeting at the time of the vote who abstains from voting is deemed to have voted in the affirmative. This section is so clear, it was actually cited in various minutes in past council meetings, just to be clear when someone abstained that they are still voting yes. Yeah, the appropriate thing if you feel like you don't have enough information is to vote the motion down. Like, I can't imagine that Colleen Hardwick is a listener. (laughs) So, although that specific defense implies that she might be. However, in the infinitesimally small chance that she listens, you know, just keep voting. Just keep abstaining. However. Eventually, it might be the swing vote. Yeah. Like, she also has the opportunity to just leave the meeting, as the Port Moody councillors did recently. That'll get your vote off the record. Yeah. But, like, I think what she's doing is, is trying to... Actually, I... I can't figure it out. I don't understand why she's doing it. Like, I I have this, like, very generous interpretation of why she might be doing it, and I can't imagine that it's actually the case where she's like, oh, okay, I'm voting yes. But I, I actually think that she legitimately thinks that she is not voting. And I don't understand why that is, and I don't get why she maintains this weird legal falsity that she isn't voting in the affirmative like if you don't believe you have enough information to vote vote the motion down or or, or move to table it like you you have these powers yeah i think when i did the analysis of 
voting records recently, most councillors had abstained at one point or another, like not generally a notable amount, like a half dozen. And as far as I can tell, the logic is similar. It's the, I'm not inherently opposed to this project or this vote. I don't feel fully informed on it, but I don't feel like I have enough reason to vote against it. Like in Hardwick's comment there, she speaks about gentrification and affordable housing and all these other, she gives herself five reasons to vote against it before she says, yeah, but I don't have this one specific piece of data that an obscure report was supposed to deliver. And therefore I am abstaining. Yeah. So I, I'm going to chalk this one up to not bad, but definitely perplexing and, you know, wash my hands of it and move on to another counselor, Mr. Fry. In the Vancouver Sun recently, Councillor Pete Fry wrote, in Vancouver, social housing probably doesn't mean what you think it does. And this, I think, is his attempt to defend his decision to vote against the nonprofit housing motion by focusing on the nuanced definition of what is a social housing unit and an affordable housing unit, even if that is kind of irrelevant to whether more housing should get built. Yeah, and... I read the piece, and I have to say that, like, given how it was written, I'm not actually sure that I am more informed on housing policy than I was when I started reading it. But his primary gripe is that in the event that a organization is building a house and it has a 30% rate of a low-income housing income limits cut off then that the entire building can be counted as social housing he considers this to be a bad thing because he is worried that organizations and he doesn't really cite any that he is specifically concerned about and so it, the shriners yeah i mean like that that's who builds these houses it's shriners it's anifets it's kiwanis like i'm it you know it, it's catalyst it's it's service organizations and, and social housing things that in part finance the the construction of those social housing units by selling market rental or market housing as well. But he states that the 12-story zoning implications on land economics were so substantial that one council colleague was advised to recuse himself as his property would see significant value increase were the motion to pass. That presumably is Michael Weeb, the only person who voted in conflict on, on this particular issue. Though, again, sad to see that it keeps happening to him. Fry ends his piece by saying, To be clear, the motion was defeated by a council majority as an inadequate policy, not because council doesn't support social or supportive housing. And this, this is like quintessential, perfect is the enemy of the good kind of justification it's like you know what this was like only 80 percent of what i wanted to see maybe maybe it was only 30 percent of what he wanted to see in which case i could see why you would vote it down but at some point you do have to say this is fine yeah there is a you know we need to get something passed and killing this because it doesn't meet every perfect criteria it doesn't help the city at some point it's got to be good enough at some point, something has got to be good enough. And, like, in the event that you don't think it's good enough, I want to see your proposal. I want to see what you 
think, and not just this sort of like gobbledygook amendment that he put forward, which was not clear. Like, it was not clear exactly what he was trying to do. I want to see specifically your plan for improving the build rate for non-market housing and and market housing anywhere in the city. Your voting record, Councillor Fry, is not great on developments. And I think that you should want, like, introspect a little bit on why that is and whether or not you are making a habit of making the perfect the enemy of the good. Well, crossing the Oak Street Bridge into another city that is tying its hands before doing the good. Richmond is once again facing calls from the Musqueam to enact the simple process of starting their meetings with a land acknowledgement, something I think only Richmond and Surrey have refused to do to date. The city of Richmond says it's not opposed to reconciliation. It's just complicated by the fact it's in lawsuits with the Musqueam and with the Cowichan First Nations over some land and properties. And the mayor argues that if they do a territorial acknowledgement, it will complicate or undermine their legal arguments. That's so full of shit. They must be bad arguments. Yeah, they must be bad, like... Colonial ones, at least, is what I mean. Like, maybe they're fine legal arguments, but they're either based on some colonial bullshit you need to get over Richmond, or they're just bad arguments. Yeah, I don't think that they're good arguments, like, from a legal standpoint, either. It just doesn't make any sense. It, it Like, so many other places in the, in the province, in the country, do territorial acknowledgments, and they haven't, you know, been overrun by First Nations lawsuits or whatever the fear is. Just just say what is like a a truth that should be basically universally known we are on land that we didn't really enter into any kind of process by which it became ours <laughs> and if the city of richmond's land disputes with these nations uh, are based on that theft yeah you can't really say you're committed to reconciliation if you're still fighting for it in court. Like, I get you might lose some assets here, but they were never really yours to begin with. This is coming on the heels of the passage of Bill C-5, the creation of a annual day for truth and reconciliation on September 30th in the wake of the discovery of 215 indigenous children in unmarked graves at a former residential school in Kamloops, BC. I, I have to want Richmond, just read the room a little. <laughs> like, take a look at the climate. Maybe they're looking at Surrey and going, Doug McCallum's not doing anything, and for some reason, he's the moral weather vane they're choosing to point at. Yeah, well, that raises questions of judgment. But I am happy to say that we have finally talked about Richmond, so (laughs) there we go. (laughs) Well, and while we're on reconciliation, let's come back to Vancouver, where Mayor Kennedy Stewart has brought forward a motion, or would have if the meeting hadn't gone long, but is bringing forward a motion to rename one street in downtown Vancouver, because it's named after a really bad man. Yes, this is Tretch Street. 
So Joseph Trutch was the first lieutenant governor of British Columbia. He was noted for his, and this is a direct quote from Wikipedia, his hostility to land claims by First Nations people and demonstrated contempt for their concerns. He's widely viewed as a mega racist asshole who really did everything <laughs> he could to abolish Aboriginal title and take their stuff. He was bad. Yeah, and so it it will be coming forward to the next council meeting on June 22nd, asking that Trutch Street in the West End be renamed. This is also a, a twin motion where Lisa Helps, Victoria Mayor, will be doing the same thing for the Fairfield Street of the same name. Yeah, I won't uh, even repeat the racist quotes of Trutch here, but he was like he was a he wasn't just a racist and a racist in his time he like brought bc or what would become bc back from where like lieutenant governor james douglas had tried to get us and that's not to say we were at a good place then but he was a big step back in yeah. uh, first nations relations so not a good name disappointment to disappointment no on commemorate and he didn't even stick around. He left five years later after his, his term as lieutenant governor concluded and went back to England and died in 1904 at 78. His legacy, however, lives on both in our laws and in our streets. One street that doesn't uh, live on is this week's Vancouverada. Yeah, so this comes to us from a TikTok from user Downey Live, who did a great little video looking at the former Cedar Street. So he points out if you walk around Kitsilano or many parts of Vancouver and you look at the corners of the older sidewalks, you'll see that the street names are engraved along the street along with the date of the paving of that tile. And this dates to before we had street signs. So you would just have to look at the ground to see where you were. Not a very efficient method as cars were invented. This is kind of interesting on its own but when you go to 11th and Burrard you'll notice that it says Cedar Street along what is now Burrard Street in Kitsilano and the reason for this is that tile that bit of concrete was poured just before the Burrard Street bridge was done and on the south side there it was Cedar Street once the bridge was done it didn't make sense to have a road become another road, something that was not observed widely in the development of Vancouver and Metro Van, <laughs> as you can yeah. regularly switch from Powell to Dundas and onto, what does it go on to, Victoria? Or 10th to 12th, as it just, yeah. like, or 4th to 2nd, it happens all over the place. But Cedar Street ceased to exist in 32, I believe it was and thus broke the chain of tree streets of Kitsilano. Yes, those tree streets have an interesting story of their own right. The original plan for those streets, they were all part of the CPR endowment for the city, like basically in order to, to encourage the CPR to end their train track here, they gave the CPR a ton of land, which is the, the CPR allotment. Those were then kind of basically given to speculative developers who wanted to develop those streets and those streets needed names. The commissioner of the CPR decided that they were going to be tree names and thought, oh, well, let's make it easy for people 
to navigate by making them all in alphabetical order, and then he left for vacation. When he came back several weeks later, the streets had all been assigned, and he said, oh, did you put them all in alphabetical order? And the staff responded, we have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and that is why Vine Street is right next to Arbutus. That's the classic, oh, the boss is back and we fucked up move. Like, is it, is it written down anywhere? No? Cool. We don't remember that conversation, sir. <laughs> I, it's, we've all done it. We've all, we've all been there. Uh, and... <laughs> We certainly have a difficult time finding our way around. It's just, it's just something that you have to do in Vancouver. You just have to memorize like the street order in your little neighborhood. And you just have to know. You just have to know. It, it is nice that we have these themes. But, you know, we could probably do with fewer streets named after racists or foreign golf courses. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think that brings us to an end of this edition of the Canby Report. For June 16th, 2021, it has been a pleasure talking with you all. For the Canby Report, I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good afternoon.